Okay, I'm Stan Stallmaker with Hub Culture at the Tech Lodge. It's January 22nd, 2020 at Davos during the World Economic Forum. This session is on how can tech save the Amazon? And we're joined right now by seven people uh, to discuss this issue. We're gonna start to my right with Jess, Justin. Say your Hi. name and organization. <laughs> Justin Winner is executive director of Earth's Call Fund, as well as co-founder of One Earth. Pam Pearson, director and founder of the International Crisis for Climate Initiative. And uh, we work also on things related to burning by farmers in places like the Amazon. Carl Burkhart, managing director of One Earth. Sarah Douglas, strategic advisor for Grounded. Frank Douglas from SAVIC. I'm the general manager for sustainability globally for SAVIC. I'm one of the partners with the Hub Culture here in the World Economic Forum in Davos. All of the polymers in the uh, Tech Lodge come from SABIC as well as the Ice House, and they're responsible for the creation of the Ice House. Uh, my name is Karen Carboni. Um, I consult conscious companies, and I'm an advisor to Senda Verde in Bolivia, which has rescued a lot of the animals from the fires. Okay. So, actually, that's a good place to start, right? So, I think the fires this year um, have created an unprecedented uh, lens on the Amazon, and show to some extent feedback loops that are occurring that go beyond just logging and deforestation. So can you give us any perspective on the Bolivian side of the fires that happened this year? Uh, yeah, just from when the time the fires started, it was about 25 days in and it didn't have any international exposure and everybody was talking about Brazil. And my understanding is the fires actually started in Bolivia and then spread into Brazil. Um, so one of the things that we did to help get that exposure is we um, we identified a 15-year-old, and she became um, part of Greta's community for Future Fridays in Bolivia. We brought her to the UN General Assembly and got her exposure at Concordia, the Youth Climate Summit. We got her about 15 interviews, and with the help of, of friends and people in the community, we were able to get um, then the message to Leonardo DiCaprio's team, and then he posted on Bolivia about a week after. Um, so we were excited to at least put it on the map and get people talking about it. Um, but there's still a lot that needs to be done, yeah. It, it's kind of interesting to the subject here, which is how can tech save the Amazon? So um, I think it would be fun to go into a little bit later the, the process of how the message got delivered from Bolivia, you know, through the system to, for amplification. And a lot of the idea here is to be able to kind of co-create um, and to discover if there are solutions or patterns that we can replicate to come to solutions. Um, for me, personally, I'm heading to the Amazon on the 30th, and I'm meeting with 100 indigenous leaders from across the Amazon for about 10 days, and I wanna take the learnings from this conversation and the 1.5 degrees imperative event that we did on Monday into that conversation and then pull back out so that we can actually look at initiatives in 2020 around harmonization. Mm -hmm. So um, perhaps we could then move to you, Justin, with One Earth, and you can talk a little bit about what One Earth is doing, particularly in the Amazon, and um, then that can kind of move into the synchronization of some of the strategies for tech. Sure. Um, well, One Earth right now, the thing that's kind of most relevant to the Amazon is that we are coming up this spring, we have a paper coming out called the Global Safety Net which um, is a scientific paper which kind of proves the, the roadmap to protecting 50% of the planet's lands specifically. Um, and the relevancy for that 
and the necessity for that to achieve 1.5 degrees Celsius. So both solving climate change and protecting biodiversity. Um, and you know, we it's not 50% obviously everywhere. It's um, very different by region and by country. The Amazon is a place we just cannot afford to lose. Mm -hmm. And the most you know, effective way to actually protect the Amazon is to empower the indigenous communities across the Amazon and work with them to ensure that they get land tenure rights. Um, so the paper and the science that we've been building is intended to help local communities and regions see their, their kind of local relevancy on the, in the global stage and then facing the global problem and to give them agency. So we have a myriad of longstanding partners that I've worked with over the years across indigenous groups and specifically in the Amazon um, who we are working directly with to kind of deliver this science so that it gives them power and agency. And last year when we launched the first version of this, which was called the Global Deal for Nature, um, we had over how many different indigenous groups signed on? 150 indigenous groups. Yeah, yeah and, and our intention was for the 50% number that's necessary for the protection of nature um, to really be delivered by communities on the ground. So the global deal for nature was, you know, we didn't go to the big NGOs, we went to the indigenous groups and the indigenous communities and other local communities to get them to sign on because they see the necessity to protect nature in the context of the climate crisis. We kind of tag team on that with yeah. one, uh, the application of tech. You wouldn't think that the tech and indigenous connection is very interesting and one we've um, funded for quite some time. And digital democracy is one of the projects um, was in my program to fund um, a new mapping technology platform co-designed by indigenous people because a lot of the mapping People, mapping scientists would come in, fly in from Sweden or, you know, Esri or wherever and like come out with all their machines and the maps weren't owned by the indigenous people and they were like, who are these people coming in our land telling us what it is? So they had to co-design. Um, it took a long time. <laughs> we were very patient capital. Uh, how many years? Uh, five years in development of the software platform. Um, and it, so then the indigenous people and uh, Sabo Alliance was an alliance of four tribes in the western um, um, Western Amazon in Ecuador. Who, in Ecuador, who really took it on and kind of helped think through what software designed for use to, to save the planet and, and what were the particular needs on the ground. Mm -hmm. It turns out the technology needs were um, no one had ever solved a lot of them, which was uh, offline asynchronous GIS. So essentially, they would be able to go out offline, but still have usable GIS data that they could then recompile all together and then they co-created those maps from the scouts that would go out and so the indigenous people were mapping their own lands. That sounds all super cool. It was actually used in the lawsuit last year that was won by um, the Warani tribe yeah. uh, to and the, the mapping product was was they were able to bring that to the court and say you know this is how we this is what our territory looks like. And um, that document um, stood. So it was held up in the courts and they won that battle. So that was a really interesting theory change of like technology actually having, um, yeah. It seems to me like the, one of the impact. ideas that's emerging here is that the technology is foundational for other out outcomes, yeah. right? So we just talked about it in the legal side. Here you talked about it on the media side. Is this something that you guys might agree with? Do you, how, where else do you see it moving in terms of the, the tech side? That's 
Fabric is a highly technical company. You guys have a global remit. <laughs> we are, and I think that uh, if that, if I listen to the conversation, uh, let's say uh, safeguarding natural resources is uh, also one of our uh, primary uh, objectives. Uh, although we are heavily uh, involved in uh, in fossil, uh, we are trying to to move away uh, from uh, that. So if you talk about the Amazon. Uh, uh, as a uh, uh, say a very important uh, natural resource for the the planet, uh, this is a, a priority. Although we, as a company, are of course in a very different way uh, uh, involved. But I think that wherever you can bring technologies to deployment that can help, and I think that's where only uh, uh, the power of um, well, of knowledge can help. Yeah, and when you consider that 40% of carbon emissions come from construction and building, mm -hmm. um, and you guys are providing construction materials that are not essentially causing deforestation, right, because these are polymer-based materials that can be highly durable and reliable, do you see any, any future for being able to use some of these materials for communities to help them build in a different way that's more sustainable? Well, I think so, but I, this goes way beyond uh, the, the design of the material itself. Uh, this really goes into how you interact with the communities and, and, and how you can really help them to, uh, to change their uh, behaviors, their economical situation and what have you. Because you cannot just simply come with a solution that doesn't bring any economical benefits to them. Huh? So I think that uh, uh, this is way beyond just the material design, because I think those technical solutions will be there. Uh, it, it goes much deeper into the society uh, uh, and how do you solve the deeper societal aspects from an economical point of view. Yeah, and I think that that raises a very interesting point, which to me gets to the very heart of how do we save the Amazon, which is that there are, the incentives are not aligned, and in fact they're actually misaligned. So currently the economic incentives concerning the Amazon involve extraction, whether it's mining or logging. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I would love to discover is if you have any thoughts about realigning the economic incentives around the Amazon toward protection. Is there a model that could be created? Is there anything happening that would allow us to start to look at ways that you'd have economic foundational value for communities to have an incentive to protect instead of to destroy? That seems to me sort of from a capitalist society standpoint, the thing that we're really missing. There's no incentive to protect other than goodwill. But um, just just to clarify, you mentioned um, that an incentive for the communities to not to destroy? I think for the- Or do you well, mean the global economy? I think for everyone, right? So it, it's, it's at all levels. Like in the local, like I've been in Guyana and other parts of the Amazon and there are no jobs. And the few jobs that there are, and you know, people are trying to feed their families. And then the weird thing is, is that when you do have economic incentives that draw people in, whether it's crafts or things like that, there's no jobs outside. And so that actually draws more people into the Amazon, which causes them more, like, more human encroachment on areas. Mm -hmm. And so there's this weird dichotomy between protection and providing capabilities for indigenous tribes. But you know, the fires are a great example, going back to them. Many of the fires, some of the fires, were set because funding, you know, dried up from Europe, and communities were complaining or protesting the fact that they weren't getting the subsidies to prevent them, and so they started burning, especially in Brazil, um, as a reaction to that. So, I'm curious what your thoughts are on incentives, and are there technical incentives or technology-based incentives that could be created that would 
help solve the, the issue, or does that just create more unintended consequences? Can I go back a little bit more to the source of the fires? Because this is this is where, where we come in, and I think where technology has a role. Um, the fires in Bolivia were primarily sugarcane burning. I don't think this got out, you know, immediately. I think, you know, through a lot of your work, it eventually did. But the, the uh, satellite monitoring that we're able to do right now is able to go down to 50 square meters. It's able to say what was there before it burned. It's able to talk about what the emissions were from what was burned. And we can do that in real time. And in some places, we can actually get that out on platforms like Twitter, for example, so that people are really well aware of that in real time. I'm fascinated by the idea of doing that off-grid in some way, because the other important part of that is, as good as the satellites are, it's really important to ground truth what's going on on the ground. Um, but for example, I, I think a lot of the burning actually also in Brazil arose from fire. Farmers setting fires on lands, they do this every year. They definitely do it with sugarcane. Um, and there are agricultural methods that do not involve the use of fire. And spreading those kinds of technologies is really, really important. You can even clear lands without loss, uh, without using fire. So that's but, a really interesting point because yeah. did the Amazon, I mean, I feel like it's new to me that the idea that the Amazon even could burn or that it, it how recent is the concept of Amazon burning? Is it's it something that's always It's been going happened? on forever, yeah. 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 It's yeah. just part of what they do. But I think yeah. in Bolivia it got out of control because, it was you know, they, it, was it was drier, it was warmer, yeah. there was less rain, but it was also, they were starting the fires to clear land for more cattle, number yes. one, um, because they'd increase their contracts to export meat. Mm -hmm. um, and they also cleared it to be able to grow more soya yeah. to feed the cattle. Feed the cattle. Which is and very interesting the given the tariffs. So it's all, right. Because it was the it was the this the you know cessation of soybean exports to China mm -hmm. this year that actually resulted in massively increased demand for soya from Brazil to fill that hole. Sarah, do you have any comments before you go? Well, as the, the lungs of the planet and rainforest, I think it's a consumer education issue. And while the fires were a really intense opportunity for the public to be aware, I think it has driven action. And I think from the Grounded perspective, and Julia Jackson founded Grounded to be able to find climate solutions, to be able to solve these issues. And obviously technology is a huge piece of this. And so as a next-gen leader, I think she's just scratching her head saying these NGOs have been working on these issues for decades. And where are the solutions? Has so, she identified or has Grounded identified any solutions that seem relevant for this topic? Um, not yet. I mean, last year at Grounded, we did have that fire um, scientist who was really interesting, Dr. Hirschberg. Um, and so he had some interesting concepts, but they're not funded. So he really can't bring them to the masses. So I think from the grounded perspective, we just want to see those solutions be put in place. And I know that Justin and Carl have been working on these for a long time, but I think it is about getting funding and getting people to really back these technologies that will get us to a better place. Well, I'm glad you said the consumer side too, because I think it's disruptive technology, which we may see five years-ish time frame is is to be able to know to see if your whatever you just bought has deforestation commodities in the product and that's something that Sainsbury's been working on and Unilever's been working on and 
Cambridge University has been working on and like all these people are working on it. And it's, a, it's in terms of the economic question that you asked, that's really one of the few ways a consumer could become an activist by scanning a barcode and saying, oh, that we can trace the provenance of the palm oil in that candy bar and it came from this forest and you can't buy that candy bar. And that that's a disruptive technology on the horizon, which people have been <laughs> pitching us for years and it's not, it's still, like we saw with the woman who came to is the Linux. Is that a blockchain thing? Uh, yeah, it's yeah. blockchain. So the Linux Foundation is just starting to pilot. I and mean, we funded traceability projects like Trace, which is a really amazing collaborative with the um, Rank uh, Canopy program. And they they used, that, that was a big data application to try and get a sense of how commodities were flowing out of the Amazon into different markets through different intermediaries. And that was, that's not blockchain. That's big data, which was still useful. But like blockchain is when the consumer can, I can take a picture of this candy bar, and now I know that came from this forest. And and that is vital. And there was a great New York Times article that just recently came out about paper towels. And seriously, like, yeah. as consumers it's, in our homes, uh, we should not be using paper towels. Yeah. And They're the fact that we're using them for every little spill in our homes, like use. <laughs> you know, because they, it, if they, if consumers did know that those trees in the Amazon are in those towels that we use. Well, and last, this is a little bit different. It's not necessarily related to tech, but last year, Amazon Watch um, produced a report showing that oil used by California drivers is sourced, has been sourced from the Amazon. And it yeah. set off a huge stir because individuals don't want to see the Amazon go down. They, yeah. they do For feel oil. a connection to it. And so when you shed a light on the fact that your actual oil consumption is coming directly from the Amazon and is playing a part in destroying the Amazon, that's a very powerful thing to shed a light on. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I wonder if, um, I'm, I'm interested in the coordination. So there are a number of organizations. There's Amazon Watch, there's Amazon Frontlines, there's the Rainforest Partnership, there's the Rainforest Alliance. It seems like there's a number of organizations that are quote unquote working on the Amazon. But I'm curious like if there's a need for better coordination between those groups or a better understanding of who's tackling what so that those gears could get a little bit better synced for bigger action. Sure, definitely. I mean, I do want to point out, though, that it's, it's, the problem doesn't inherently lie within the NGOs. I mean, let's take a step back and realize that there are huge corporate kind of pressures and economic pressures on, you know, on the Amazon and the communities within the Amazon and, and groups working on the Amazon and on the countries and, um, and the organizations working on environmental issues you know, less than all, less than three percent of all philanthropic dollars, and just really a tiny fraction goes to environmental issues. Mm -hmm. And so there's, you know, we're talking about tiny, scrappy organizations working with practically no funding mm -hmm. to work on a huge swath of land with very complex issues mm -hmm. hitting it. So it's, it's really yes, of course, it's always better for organizations to be really strategic and collaborative and working in coordination with each other. And we've seen pretty amazing coordination happening. Um, especially with very locally driven groups and then alliances of indigenous groups. It's, it's pretty remarkable considering what they're up against. Um, so I'm just kind of pointing what that are out. These, so what are these organizations most need right now? I mean, of course, funding is something, but beyond funding, is there something else that would be a game changer for having them scale their ability to help? 
I mean, I personally think a lot of it comes down to funding, and I think a lot of it comes down to supporting on-the-ground groups that are working directly in the Amazon and are indigenous-led, um, and getting them resources for basic capacity building. Because, you know, it's how can you possibly do long-term planning or do full-on coordination with hundreds of tribes across the Amazon if you are every month almost completely out of resources to continue the fight. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's insane. Mm -hmm. It's just, so my, you know, my kind of historically, my approach to grant making has been trust-based grant making, mm -hmm. where you identify really, you know, leaders with deep integrity working directly in communities and often indigenous led mm -hmm. and often have, you know, Western allies um, who have done remarkable things and you give them resources and you build partnership with them and you, you trust them and you help them build a broader, bigger vision. Mm -hmm. um, that's what's needed. And we, you know, for, for far too long and from the philanthropic angle, there's been this very kind of top-down approach mm -hmm. to philanthropy where the philanthropist sitting, you know, sitting in a, in a boardroom in New York City thinks that they know exactly what those groups should be doing and making them get them their impact reports and da da da. And many times these organizations are like, you know, fighting to make sure that their their families don't die of cancer from exposure to to oil toxins. So it's just the the dichotomy between the real world impacts for these groups on the ground of what they're dealing with and, and their connection to funding resources to keep them going is very disparate um, and disconnected. So there's yeah. Let alone yeah. the physical risk, the human rights me. risk right. so many of them are facing. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. we'll send you a, a copy. Yeah. My email and phone number is there, so I'd love to connect with you guys. Uh -huh. Thank you. Um, um, and, I mean, and the battle, too, like, related to that is, like, we were talking about land tenure, you know, and, and this was a piece of tech I wanted to show if we have time or you can put it in the archive, but um, we've been funding Greg Asner's work, which is... Um, Light, spectral lidar, so it's it's basically he can fly, he we funded helped him fund fly fly over Peru, uh, the entire country, and he's able to map by species every single tree. So what he's able to do then is build. I mean, let's show it here for a second. Is that Google Earth? Um, no, it's a he did this animated sequence here. It's starting to go out. I think. Is it going? Yeah. So that crazy psychedelic map is actually. <laughs> built from um, rem this super advanced remote sensing technology, which can detect species by species from space. And then what he did is he presented this to the Peruvian government. It was like, look, you see those areas with all the colors and all the biodiversity? That, those, are those are indigenous lands. What are the, um, what are the black spots? Uh, um, either, there is not. That's a good question. Yeah, it, or it could be rock or um, rock and ice, and or it could be gov the government. He had to back it out. How big of a space is that? Well, this is, if I backed up, I mean, it's the entire, I wish it stopped for a second on Peru, because it's so beautiful. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Peru was the one we specifically funded. <coughs> so there's a lot of conversation yeah. that they think that half of the Amazon will eventually be irretrievably lost. Well, if that happens, game over. Yeah, yeah. totally. Well, you know, For the world. So, yes. <laughs> so you have the technology. So anyway, the point behind this is that technology, okay. part of it is, you know, so what he's doing, he's Those able to go to so the... So what's the difference between, like, the, the colors, like the pink and the green? They're all different species. A plant. Constellation, so species constellation. So he's able to give the government scorecards of different parts of the country 
and show this is the area you have to really focus on. And look, there's all these indigenous lands right around there. So he was able to use technology to make the case to strengthen the, the indigenous argument, which is for us like a really amazing coming together of the two pieces of the social, kind of really social justice work yeah. of getting land rights to the people that have been there and actually co-created so the Amazon, which a lot of people don't know, the Amazon was engineered by, by indigenous people over thousands of years to um, be productive for people and for nature and to give them agency with governments. Like we have high, the most advanced technology on earth, now we're able to show and back up the indigenous argument. So I think that's kind of part of our theory of change on the tech side. It seems like that data is the new foundation of social justice. Pretty important for it, because <laughs> if you don't have data points, no one will listen to you. you know, like well, and, and what's interesting on the on the digital democracy side, um, the the technology that Carl spoke to earlier, what what was so cool, and it's it's very visual, so it's hard to convey on radio, unfortunately. But um, what was so amazing about the mapping done from the ground up is that they they used the mapping to to register everything that was important to them. Mm -hmm as well as all these additional benefits like marking biodiversity and seeing spottings of, of jaguars and, and marking illegal logging and mining and da da da. They were also tracking like the salt licks where all the parrots come to get essential minerals. They were, they were tracking where they last saw um, you know, prey that they hunt for. Um, they, they were tracking, so there, and then they came up with symbols that represented the things that they saw and it was all drawn from their perspective. So it was, it becomes this really phenomenal map mm -hmm. from an indigenous lens of their lands. And then they start to view it differently. They start to see that this is, their lands are within the context of, you know, this much of the Amazon. And then they start to understand the, con you know, what role that they, their community plays in the context of, of the global fight on climate change. So it creates this really interesting, you know, multi-benefit kind of tiers it's it's pretty fascinating and very different than other technologies that have been top down because mm -hmm. if you if you just bring you know bring new technology to map biodiversity or to to map threats from the top down without thinking about the additional things that they're interested in the communities are interested in it often just gets used for 6 months and then tossed in the garbage mm -hmm. it doesn't have a long standing impact yeah it's not resilient yeah mm -hmm. no. yeah any thoughts? Frank, any thoughts? Mm, no. <laughs> well, a lot of thoughts, but uh, yeah. I think there's a lot of uh, interesting uh, remarks uh, being made uh, on, on data and uh, and on real facts. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that it all uh, comes down to uh, to creating uh, the uh, the acceptance, and, and that's in, in actually what you said. You cannot do that top down uh, uh, with somebody sitting in New York or whatever. <laughs> it really is on-the-ground work to be done, uh, understanding what those communities are really interested in and how you can help them best. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that comes back to economic regeneration. This, yeah. um, can we come back to the regenerative agriculture mm -hmm. thing for a second? Because I thought that was very interesting. Um, is there uh, a pathway to 
education, perhaps, yeah, being there a, is. a major role in this? What, what we have found is that the most important aspect of getting farmers not to use fire in agriculture, so it, you know, th this is where the, the clearing has already taken place, but I, I think in connection with what we're talking about with indigenous lands is it's preventing the inadvertent loss of those lands because of use of fire elsewhere. Because most of the fires that take place in non-previously burned areas are, are because of wildfire spread from bordering agricultural lands. And we can actually watch this happen in a lot of cases. Um, and isn't there once a kind of perverse we, once, incentive to let that happen? No, there isn't. There isn't because the farmers themselves actually would prefer not to burn. So mm. when, when, when a farmer burns the land, and this is the education part, you know, it, the, what doesn't work is banning burning. Mm -hmm. Because then the, the farmers revolt against that and uh, eventually governments back down because, you know, the, the, the rural populations in a lot of places, including the Amazon, do actually have, you know, some degree of, of power. So they don't want to get crosswise. But every time uh, a soil is burned, it loses fertility. It is not fertilized by the burning, which is what the Brazilian ag minister said, which is completely incorrect. Yeah. It loses fertility. The soil becomes brittle. It becomes more prone to erosion. So you're losing that layer of topsoil. So then they're going down the next season to a deeper layer of topsoil, burning that, mm -hmm. losing that. They're having to use more money for fertilizer. And the, the no-burn uh, methods, the regenerative agriculture, also involves no plowing, if at all possible. So they're using less petrol. So, so they can make more money because they are using less fertilizer and less gasoline on the same lands. They're getting the same or better yields out of it, and they're not using fire. So is there any way that you could get me a list or some sort of paper yeah. that we could get printed out? that I could give to these indigenous leaders that talks about how to do regenerative agriculture. Yeah, and, and there, there's a lot of good work being done in understory agriculture too, where you're preserving the trees and you're, you're just, cultivating I mean, This is like low tech, but just yeah. being able to hand out. That's all it is. Well, you should make a different, yeah. It depends on what they're doing. Don't, aren't doing burning. I mean, they, they will, there is, there are, there's histories of controlled burnings in forests, but there, it's a, it's a, it's a different model than, yeah. these are, these are like Brazilian farmers. Farmers. farmers yeah. So it's, cases. it's communities, but not indigenous communities. Yeah. And, but the farm, but it comes, like you said, importantly, it's the government that's giving this ancient science that's totally <laughs> disproven now. Yeah. And, and, and it's sort of like a generation of people have used this mm -hmm. ancient crappy science. And um, yeah, how yeah. do you... Do are you guys doing anything like, are, are you funding any kind of reports or any research into showing governments that they should be promoting regenerative agriculture versus like slash and burn agriculture? Or just yeah. burn agriculture. Or I mean, burn. that's it. People yeah. burn you in places slash. from Russia <laughs> and Ukraine no, to India to, yeah. Thailand. Yeah. But it, once they're aware, that's yeah. where the education comes in, because once they're yeah. aware that they're actually harming themselves by burning, they don't want to burn. And then you have to be ready to come in with these yeah. alternative technologies. What like are these no alternative technologies? No-till agriculture. They're not okay. necessarily like new Digital. technologies. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're still very old methodologies, yeah. but yeah. you still yeah. need, you, they take. To incorporate that into a community and a group of finer, farmers requires on the hand, you know, on hand uh, working hand with them yeah. for many months to get them to understand the process and mm -hmm. the value of doing it. And the fact that even though it looks like a really messy field because yeah. there's right. a lot yeah. of stuff on it, it's actually, that's good for the that's field. Good. Right. And it's, it's an adaptation too because the fact that you have the old roots of the previous crops there when you have extreme rains or extreme droughts, yeah. it's more... 
yeah. resilient. Yeah. So there are all sorts of good reasons to do it, but yeah, it's that hand-holding. Yeah. And you've got everything from so walk-behind direct seaters to big minutes. stuff. Yeah. yeah. So can we get a final word from each of you on this? And then we're going to... That's my final word. I think that's the final word. We have to... We have to create a theory of change around yeah on the and it's like this whole absurdity of like we need to you know we're not growing enough food for people now we're growing enough food for 10 billion people but we're spending a lot of it on cows and in diesel mm -hmm. um so we we don't need to convert more land we actually need to stop degrading the land yeah. that we have and we can feed everybody 10 billion people easily with good nutrition but mm -hmm. we have to figure this is the challenge of our generation because mm -hmm. ag is the big driver for all of the worst things that are happening on the planet more than deforestation more than well mining. deforestation is, really is basically yeah. Ag. yeah and mining is bad and horrible and drilling is bad and horrible but agri the agricultural footprint is almost you know it's like a third of the planet yeah. if you include um cattle rangelands so it's like you know it's a third of what we're using our whole entire planet and the pressures as the population grows Gross. a lot of stupid stupidity can kind of come into play mm -hmm. just because of these old legacy practices yeah. that people yeah. don't know about we're only three meals away from a revolution yeah final point um i don't know i, I would just make a call point? out to you know to really kind of changing um the methodologies around grant making and mm -hmm. really scaling up the amount of resources that are going to indigenous rights and yeah. land tenure rights and then also specifically um, doing trust-based grant making and getting um, organizations on the ground um, you know core capacity grants versus making them jump through a ton of ho hoops mm -hmm. yeah. okay right final word um well i think that uh, as i just uh, mentioned then uh, if uh, Agricultural is, the, let's say, the main cause of uh, of what we're facing here. Uh, this is also about, let's say, technologies, new technologies on how to more effectively, efficiently utilize the land that we uh, uh, use uh, worldwide. I think that <clears throat> from that point of view, in these areas like uh, in the Amazon area, we are far away from where we are elsewhere in the world. And to see how you can leverage these kind of technology developments across the globe. Coming from the Netherlands, I think the Netherlands has a quite an efficient uh, way yeah. of uh, running uh, agricultural. Uh, That's true. Parts. That's where you could have to also to utilize that uh, it's in other parts of the world. And it goes beyond the Amazon, I have to say. Yeah, it is, it Amazon is one area. But. Well, the tech that the Dutch are coming up with for ag is really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and actually mm -hmm. even having floating farms um, and uh, the um, you know LED greenhouse. Yeah. They've been yeah. pioneering the greenhouse, like urban farming um, yeah. through uh, natural scale greenhouse. Thank you everyone. So I think we've ended on technology can obviously play a role and it seems like regenerative agriculture and rethinking grant making are the two kind of points we've landed on. Fascinating. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Like we've been saying, you know, update. Uh, <laughs>